Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveler. Welcome, it's Kim and Phil with you delivering our next destination episode of the World Nomads podcast on Tonga. So over to you, Phil, to explain why it's somewhere a nomad would want to visit. Well, it is a bit of a wildcard destination, isn't it? Uh, something in the Pacific that isn't Fiji. Uh, as an example, there are, uh, look, it's got 170 islands. It's lined with white sand beaches, of course, and mm. coral reefs. You've got me at that. Yes. Uh, Covered with rainforest. And lots of those 170 islands are uninhabited, so you've got plenty of chances to go off and play Robinson Crusoe if you want to do. And if you're still wondering where in the Pacific Tonga is, um, let's put it in context. It's directly south of Samoa, and it's about two-thirds of the way from uh, between Hawaii and New Zealand. Now we've sorted that out. In this episode, we'll hear about rebuilding after Cyclone Gitter chat to a local about his homeland and the traditional use of various plants. And look, whale watching, I know we covered it in our last episode on the USA with orcas in um, Alaska, Alaska, but Tonga is very special for humpback whales and we'll hear that in this okay. episode. But let's kick off with Shantae to tell us about Sundays in Tonga. So on Sundays, everything closes down. Um, Tonga is a predominantly Christian country and they follow the law of the Sabbath, which means that restaurants, um, activities, tour operators all close down on Sundays so that families can spend time at church with each other and um, enjoying big meals. So the only place you can go and really enjoy being a tourist without uh, having to go to church um, are resorts that have restaurants or sort of hotels um, rather than just everyday shops and restaurants. Did that surprise you? Were you prepared for that? I did hear that it would be closed down on Sundays, but I didn't realize to the extent. Um, So you'll hear church bells ringing in the morning and everyone is going to church um, and there's not a single person who seems to be working outside of that. I think there are a few bakeries open just to have people get breakfast before they go. But other than that, it's completely silent um, and completely closed. So that was shocking to me. You found something to do and I'd love to hear about it. Sounds like an awesome day trip. Yes. So there's a tiny little island about 10 minutes from Nugalofa, which is called Pangamotu Island. Um, And because it has a very small resort and restaurant, you can still visit it on Sundays. It takes about 20 minutes to walk around the entire island and Surrounding it are coral reefs and shipwrecks. So if you wanted to go snorkeling, that would be an ideal spot. What a Sunday. Yeah, it's great. And um, there's a known shipwreck that's been there for years that you can go. And underneath it, there's tons of reef bombies and um, schools of fish that you can go and see and eels and starfish. But because Cyclone Gita came through in early 2018, there's also a handful of other shipwrecks just off of the island that's about a five-minute swim away that you can also snorkel around. Now, we're chatting later in the episode to Rochelle about swimming with with whales. And uh, in your article, you mentioned that you can do that. The season is between July and October. What was the snorkeling like and the quality of the the corals and and the sea and the fish that you see? Well, the whales are in open water, so it was hard to tell exactly how the corals were um, deeper, but off of the shoreline, there were parts where the coral was really thriving and you'd see 
a lot of starfish, a lot of smaller reef fish and schooling fish. Um, but then there was also parts where the shipwrecks came through between, let's say, Pangamotu and Tongatapu that you did see some damage from the cyclone. Um, so it's a bit of some of it uh, is thriving and some of it is still recovering. Okay, so Pangamotu Island itself, you said it takes 20 minutes to walk around it. What's it like? So around it, you have these very small beaches that almost get uh, eclipsed at high tide. The water comes in right up to a, a line of bush and, and palm trees. And in the middle of it, there's a small resort and you can hear piglets running around. You can hear dogs and people just um, who work at the resort puttering about their day. And then when, at low tide, all the beach and the sand is exposed so you can walk around and it's very that idyllic South Pacific kind of look to it. And you can just throw down a towel and enjoy wherever you find a sandy spot. And it's kind of a picture-perfect paradise just off of Tongatapu. Well, with 170 islands, there would have to be some places where it's only you and your footprints. Yeah, definitely. What attracts a traveller to Tonga? I would say Tonga is more for an adventurous spirit. So if you really want, because it's not such an overly developed place, I mean, of course, there are big resorts, but Tonga as a whole, especially Tongatapu and the resorts that are much smaller and they're kind of just bures made with thatch roofing and really natural materials, you can easily see how Tongans live. And if you get in a car, you can drive around and find all the best natural features. Island hop, um, it definitely takes a bit more of a, yeah, adventurous type of person to really experience Tonga in the best way. And yeah, you, then you can enjoy the nature and all the culture and the activities. Well, I believe you because we'll share your blog, Shante was here, but you're actually an adventure journalist and we mentioned that you're based in Fiji. What, what sort of stuff are you writing? I really love to write about ocean sports, so surfing, diving, free diving, um, which is kind of also why I was very drawn to Tonga because it is such a hub for all ocean activities and their ocean wildlife is just incredible. Um, free diving is one of the best ways, I think, to really see the wildlife and nature because you don't need as much equipment as scuba diving. Free diving is when you basically snorkel on one breath or I guess advanced snorkeling. Um, How long can you hold your breath for? Um, I can hold my breath for four minutes. Which, which everyone can hold their breath at least two and a half minutes. Yeah, in one day, most people can learn. It's just um, a few skills you learn and easily anyone can do two minutes. Tonga, again, great for free diving, you, you would recommend. Yes, definitely. It's one of the best places to free dive and snorkel. Thank you, Shantae. Now to Taki Hosea. Oh, hope I got that right, Tacky. He moved to <laughs> old a, mate Tacky. Yeah, old mate Tacky. He moved to Australia in the mid seventies from Tonga, and when his dad moved back there in the nineties to build what they call a resort. Now they they aren't resorts. They just thought that that's what you call accommodation, right? So that's why they refer to accommodation as resorts, but. They're definitely not resorts. White sand beach, coral reef and rainforest, I'm in. Yeah, Yeah. well, exactly. So he went there uh, to help his dad build uh, the resort, joined him as manager, taking wildlife treks. But let's hear from Taki himself about his island home and his take on Tonga. Yeah, it's um, basically there's three groups or there's four groups of islands through the whole country. And the one I'm from is called Ewa, 
Tonga's made up, I think, of about 180 islands, and I think only, I think 60 are inhabited. Yeah, well, that's the thing. There, there are, as you said, over 170 to around 180 islands, and a lot that that are uninhabited. Mm. Is is that one of its charms, or? Because one of the reasons why we're focusing on it as this destination episode is it's this jewel in the Pacific that's not Fiji. It's it's not trendy. Am I making sense? It's one of those places that, that someone could go and walk on a beach and you're probably the only person that's done that in the last couple of months. That's, a, that's exactly what Tonga is. It's not Fiji. Uh, probably a good way to describe it. There's difference between tourists and travellers. So Tonga's type of people that visit Tonga are travelling people, not so much the mainstream travel uh, tourists. Do you know what I mean? The tourist yeah. versus the traveller. Probably a good way to describe also describe Tonga. It's um, it missed it missed the tourism train when it was sort of booming in the Pacific, Fiji and mainly Hawaii, New Caledonia. Cook Islands, they all jumped onto the tourism sort of train when it was sort of booming. So Tonga wasn't didn't really get onto that. But why not? You look at images of, of Tonga and it's stunning. It's like, why haven't I been there before? I think our government and our, our monarchy has something to do with it because we were, if you talk about Indigenous nations that were colonised by, let's say, European powers... Uh, they developed quicker in the Western sort of culture. Tonga has never been colonised. And, and so a lot of the locals say that that's the reason why we've sort of been left behind. Uh, up till today, Tonga still hasn't been colonised. That has something to, I'm sure that that has something to do with its low development in sort of Western culture, even up to today. And comes down to advertising too. Yes, yes. Some, some of the locals I've heard, they've said the reason why we're behind, you know, in sort of like uh, Western cultural ways, like marketing and development, is because we weren't colonised. And, of course, you know, there's always two sides of the story and, of course, you're going to get locals saying, we should have been colonised, and then there's a lot. There's a majority of locals saying, "No, it's better that we kept it." Our, my home island, where I'm from, we, there was basically no tourism there at the time. When we started there, it was already at sort of like close to rock bottom. So the only, the only way was up. No matter what you did, it's going to be an improvement to it. So it was untouched. I think Tonga's got a very unique land system because, because we haven't been colonised from day one up till today, the land has never been taken, which means the land is owned by the people, ultimately owned by the crown, by the king. So the king made it law that his country and land is for his people. So when he gave his land to his people, with no, there's no fee for it, he basically gave his land for his people. And he basically said, it's illegal for you guys to sell your land that I've given to you. So it stays in the family line. You inherit land in Tonga. You don't pay for it because it was given to you. So how does that work then with encouraging travellers? Um, if, if you're sharing that land that's been gifted to you. No, well, see, you, 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 you get a piece of land 
And it's up to you what you do with it, whether you build a house on it or you or you do agriculture on it or you build a, a little motel on it or whatever you want to do, as long as it's legal, of course. Now, you and your family had land and you built this, and we'll say resort, inverted commas, and it was blown away by the cyclone. How affected was Tonga by Cyclone Gitta and how affected were your family, your immediate family, and the income stream that you generate? Yeah, the country was was pretty badly affected, which was February 2018. Of course, you know, the Pacific, we're all living in a high cyclone-prone area. Climate change is taking its effect. Uh, there's more cyclones now than my grandparents' days. Also, sea rising is taking effect. That's the type of things you live with when you live in the Pacific. It runs like it gets like there's a lot of aid that comes into the country, and I think I think in the Pacific we just you just it's it, you just you just move on, you just get on with it, and you keep going. Uh, you become that type of environment makes people very resilient. Well, what would be your advice then to a traveller because it is a place that's going to attract a traveller, not not a tourist, and we love that. Not putting words in your mouth, but respecting your culture and respecting the fact that the land's been gifted to you. Mm. What would you What would you like to say to people that that want to visit? If you If you want to visit Tonga. You know, it's not a it's not a, a regimental timetable like the ferry like the ferry timetable that comes to to some of the islands. You know, it's not catering for for tourists. It caters the ferry service is for the local people. So you, when you catch a ferry or when you participate in something in Tonga, it, it's not it's not tourist accommodated for. It's local accommodated for so you're basically integrating in what what was going to happen is what's happening in the country does that make sense it's definitely got its own time i think with travelers that come to tonga allow some buffer like uh don't say you're going to land today and leave on this date you know things happen sometimes a flight or sometimes a ferry you've got it's that type of destination where you go with the flow and you've got to allow for some, you know, some sort of, you know, that things don't run on time all the time, you know. And the cabs can be a little bit late. The ferry can leave late. Uh, your flights can land late or leave late. You know, how, you know how Westerners are used to, like, thinking ahead of mm. time, what's happening on this day, what time does it start? You know, they're thinking, like, a few days ahead. Wrong place to do that. Look, I did want to ask you because I had read about this understanding of traditional use of plants. Yes. Okay, so is there one tip if you come across, I don't know, what if you're likely to be bitten by mosquitoes in in Tonga, is there one plant that you can use to rub on yourself that takes the sting away? There's there's several plants that you can use that will take the sting away, take the swelling away. There's also plants for infections. There's plants for uh, earaches. Um, There's plants for asthma, coughing. I think Japan is taking some, uh, they're exporting, uh, there's a plant called a noni juice 
I think that's pretty well known throughout the Pacific, uh, throughout the world now. And, and Taki, just touching on Japan, um, yeah. the squat you you grow a lot of squash for Japan. Yeah, the, we the Pacific was doing it, and Tonga was taking a cut of the cake. And I think it's sort of come to a little bit of a halt now. Uh, I think the squash market is sort of uh, it was booming probably about probably a little bit less than ten years ago, and then it's uh, there's not a lot of land you know, on 180 islands. So you can only grow so much commercially. Yeah, I think, I think we just got to go back to our roots, you know. And I think the less commercial things we try to tap into, the better. You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but at the same time welcoming like-minded travellers. Yes. And just travellers that are looking for an off-the-beaten-track experience, you know, sitting in the back of the truck, riding around town, that sort of feel, you know, no hustle and bustle. You're basically the only person on the beach, kids running around, you know, very friendly, low crime rate. It's that type of, um, that sort of a feel for that type of traveller. Taki, by the way, Phil is in Australia to get a loan to rebuild their resort or their accommodation. Okay, best of luck to him. And by the way, a section of Iwa rainforest, including limestone cliffs and caves, were protected as a national park in 1992 with trees found nowhere else in the world. Okay, what's travel news, Phil? All right, big news and the dust is still settling on this one. Uh, The US Trump administration has tightened the rules on Americans travelling to Cuba, uh, the ones that were relaxed by uh, President Obama back in 2016. Look, they've banned cruise ship operations from the United States and cruisers have already started redirecting and they've eliminated that people-to-people educational travel for Americans, which most people were using. Uh, and American tourists who travelled under the support for Cuban people category in the visa application will now have to provide an itinerary that includes meeting with local Cubans, attending cultural events and staying at a, a homestay in Cuba, a casa particular instead of a hotel. Look, Americans can still travel to Cuba, but it's going to be really hard to find a way and uh, no cruise ships for now, which... It's actually quite a good thing, I think. That is a good thing, but with the greatest respect, because I know there are people that uh, like Trump. Was he bored? Why did he just decide uh, to do that? It, it's just he uh, he is saying that the communist regime in Cuba is using American money to fund uh, Venezuela. Okay. All right. So, you know. Let's not get political. Yeah, no, let's not. Um, I want to take you to task before you continue on your travel news. You you are just (laughs) back from what I would pronounce as Nepal, but you're not – you now don't – No, I've gone all posh. He's gone all posh. (laughs) So apparently this is how Phil says Nepal now. Nepal. Nepal, right? He says it like that. It's Nepal. It rhymes with PayPal. Yeah. It's Nepal. No, Nepal. Um, We have heard from Shantae who says Tonga. Yes. I think you've put a bit of g in your Tonga. I say Tonga. Let's find out from Taki how you actually say Tonga. The Tongan language, like the T's are D's. So it's like you don't. we don't say that. We say Tonga, Tonga Tapu. Yeah, my name is like in, like the white fellas would say Taki, but in Tonga they call it Taki. There you go. All right. 
But, well, we were having this discussion in the office the other day when I got picked up for being a smart, <laughs> smarty pants for pronouncing it correctly yeah. now. But And as um, as Isaac said, so why don't we say Paris then and why don't we, you know. But Isaac, our social media manager, who you would have heard on previous podcasts, he says Cuba. Cuba. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> when he was chatting about uh, the travel news that you just delivered, Cuba. But, you know, when you – but I was there and – I noticed my very Australian accent when I was going, Nepal, <laughs> and everybody else was saying Nepal. Okay. So, so you know. It'll, look. I'm not being – I don't think I'm being a show-off. I think I'm trying to be respectful. Don't worry. You'll but forget maybe, about maybe it in I'm a couple of weeks. big – Yeah, pumps. <laughs> uh, Any more travel news? Yeah, got a couple of bits. We've got time. A 21-year-old yep. uh, American woman, Lexi Alford. Now you've got me, I can't pronounce anything. (laughs) Lexi Alford has become the youngest person ever to visit all 196 sovereign nations. She earned her global degree at the end of May when she stepped into North Korea, the same room that Tony Wheeler was talking about last week. Lexi Limitless, as she's known on Insta, says she did it to inspire others to travel and to understand the world. Good on her. I reckon that's an interview. Uh, Yeah, I'll, I'll be able to track it down. I know the guys from... Global degree that she did it with. So did you I'll meet them in Nepal? I'm <laughs> <laughs> <All> snorting. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I, okay, but something a bit serious, and I want your opinion on this one. There's an environmental movement which has emerged out of Sweden and it's, it's spreading across Europe at the moment, and they're using the tag flight shame. And it's a, a growing some momentum. It's dedicated, dedicated environmentalists are saying that we should shun plane travel because of the carbon footprint that it does. And there's another hashtag growing alongside that one as well, which is, it did, translates as train brag. So people are using overland transport trains instead of flying on planes. So surface transport. Surface transport, yep. which we've... We've covered. Yep. And we will be, I'm aware of that, and I'm chasing an interview about that hashtag. Oh, flight shame. Yeah, okay. flight shame. But you, you have the choice to add to your ticket a carbon offset fee. True. True. So, and look, and it's okay for you know intracontinental travel. So you can do all of North and South America without getting on a plane if you. Yeah, want. yeah. You can do all of Europe all the way down into Southeast Asia, but you know there are some places. It's like getting between continents, which I think is going to be and hard. quickly. And quickly, that's right. Yeah. I know, but it's a choice you have to make, I suppose. I mean, if you can limit airplane travel within a continent and only use it to travel between continents, I suppose that. So it reduces yeah. your footprint. Anyway, keep an eye on that. Uh, flight shame. Something to think about. There you go, I'm done. Okay, now you mentioned Tony Wheeler. He was our latest amazing nomad and he's the co-founder of Lonely Planet. When we interviewed him, he had one piece of advice for travellers. Oh, travel light, you know, that's that's far and away. The, every time I see some someone dragging this enormous bag around behind them, you know, and it's really, it's, it's you know, it's everyone starts off doing that. Think, oh, I need this, I need that, I need something else. You don't, you know. And you soon find out you don't. Well, Francesco Arbolino pretty much sums that up. He's travelled to over 110 countries as an extra light backpacker. Plus, he's had some pretty amazing experiences, which you'll hear. But what do you get into a 26-litre pack and sometimes smaller, depending on where he's going? Um, You get plenty of stuff. I I carry usually three T-shirts and they're all made out of wool. So they can be worn 10 days in a row and they don't smell. And they're also, they're also good in hot and cold climates. 
Uh, normally I carry one like button down shirt, something a little bit nicer. Um, I carry like a, a light down jacket, uh, that, that can pack down into like the size of a tennis ball. I carry one pair of sandals, three pairs of underwear, three pairs of socks, one pair of pants, one pair of shorts, one pair of swim trunks. Um, all my toiletries, you know, but like all small things, you know, like a little thing of shampoo, a little thing of conditioner, bar of soap. Are you a roller, not a folder? You have to roll stuff to get into a pack, all that stuff into a no, pack. No, I fold it, yeah. Folder? Oh, yeah. There, go. there goes yeah, my theory. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm interested in the rotation. If there's three T-shirts, three pairs of underpants, three pairs of socks, blah, blah, uh, does that mean you're washing every three days or do you? No, no, because um, I carry, everything is wool. So like on this past trip, out of the three T-shirts, I didn't use one of the shirts. I, I literally wore two T-shirts the entire trip. And where were you? Where'd you go? I was in New Zealand, Fiji, Solomon Islands, Samoa, and Vanuatu. You, how did you get into traveling? What happened was I dropped out of college and I had a friend who wanted to travel the U.S. with me. I bought a, a Volkswagen Vanagon, like a, a Westphalia, so I had like a little camper van in it. And um, we traveled around the U.S. And then after that was done, I wanted to, to go other places. So I went to Mexico and then England and then just started traveling everywhere. I went back to college eventually. And then I would take one month every winter and go to one country. And when I graduated college, I said, I'm going to work. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably take a year and a half to save enough money to travel for a year. I saved enough money to travel for a year and basically I budgeted about $50 a day throughout that trip. I was like, you know what, if I can spend $25 a day, I could travel for two years. And then I was like, well, if I can travel for $25, then I, I could travel for, you know, twelve and a half dollars a day, I could travel for four years. So I just like, I, I kept lowering and lowering my budget and then getting more and more extreme in what I was doing, like hitchhiking and couch surfing and try dumpster diving a couple of times. So I was really able to spend very little money. And in the end, that trip was like two and a half years because I ended up coming home. I was just tired of traveling and I still had money left. And then I worked in New York for another six months and then I actually moved to Australia for a year. And then that year in Australia, I, was, uh, I traveled for three months. And then afterwards, uh, me and Molly traveled for a year and a half afterwards. Good luck living in Australia on twelve and a half dollars. Yeah, how did you do that? No, you <laughs> well, would have had well, luckily, luckily, I had a job there, and yeah. and yeah, I was making good money, and it was great. You visited those countries, but from what I've heard about you, there's almost seems to be a story everywhere that you go. You and Molly, for example, waking up to AK-47s being pointed at you. That was in between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, and. We were hitchhiking and I, I had done a little research online and found out not to hitchhike. It was basically like, this is going to take you three days. Don't do it. Just take a, take a, you know, paid, paid like a shared taxi. And then I was like, nah, let's hitchhike. <laughs> we, we got to the border and we were actually, we met these two other Lithuanians uh, along the way and they were also hitchhiking uh, and they were also a couple. And we got to the border, we crossed over the border by foot. And then we waited an entire day and not a single car passed, <laughs> not one. <laughs> so it was, uh, we were at about 3,500 meters at the time. So it was quite cold because you're, you're up in the mountains and at night it was going to hit negative four degrees. We, we had a tent and we had sleeping bags, but 
they were rated to maybe two degrees. So we were going to really be cold. And, um, there was this little shack across the street. So we, we picked the lock on it. We just kind of turned it sideways and it came out. When we, when we went inside, there was a, a pile of blankets up to our chins. So we were like, Oh my God, this is the best. So we, we, we slept in these blankets. Um, we were super warm. And then in the morning, um, me and the Lithuanian guy went to the river to, to go get some water. And the river was towards the border with uh, Kyrgyzstan. So when we were there, I saw some, some soldiers walking, and I didn't think anything of it. And then when we were walking back to the shack, I was like, you know what? I should probably make sure that the front door is closed in case they were going to walk past the shack. And as I was pushing it closed, because it, it was open maybe an inch and a half, I saw some, some camo behind it. And I started to push and I go, uh Oh, that, that's some soldiers. And so they kind of kicked open the door and then they had, yeah, there was like six of them and they had AK 47s and they were, they were yelling in Russian. They're like, you know, get outside, get outside, get outside. And, um, so they, they pushed us outside and, um, luckily the Lithuanians spoke a bit of Russian and they kind of got us out of it. But in the end they were like, basically, okay, you're not allowed to be here. This is no man's land start walking to, to Tajikistan right this second. And Tajikistan was 23 kilometers over a 4,200 meter peak. So we, we, we just had to hike. We had no other option. Molly was actually feeling sick. So she started throwing up. <laughs> and finally one car passed and it was like a five seater little car. And there was there were boxes and boxes stacked on top of the roof. And there were seven people inside. <laughs> We stood in front of the road and we, we basically made them stop or run us over. And we said, listen, you need to take Molly um, because she's feeling sick and the rest of us can walk. So she got in and like sat on like a seven year old man's lap in the front seat <laughs> and that she just took off and, and she left to go to the border. And then me and the two Lithuanians had to hike the rest of the way. And yeah, and then we finally, we met her at the other side after we were extremely exhausted and altitude, and, and had altitude sickness. I reckon the AK-47s pointed at you would have tested those woolen underpants. Oh yeah, you know, um, I couldn't, I was, I was actually extremely happy to walk 23 kilometers. <laughs> I, I thought that, that we were going to be put in, um, in jail or they were going to, you know, some, somehow ask for some unreasonable amount of money, like $3,000 or something. That we didn't have. Well, you do like to test it. You also hitchhiked in a small cargo boat loaded to the brim with 6,000 litres of gasoline <laughs> to yeah, reach yeah. Um, a remote settlement in the Amazonian rainforest. That was um, that was in between Suriname and French Guiana. And um, yeah, believe it or not, there was actually some rapids as well. It was on a speedboat with that much, uh, that much fuel on it. So there were a couple of sections where I was like, Oh my God, there's no way this boat is going to make it. We're going to capsize. And it took all day. It was like 10 hours on a, on a boat, just sitting on a barrel of gasoline. It was pretty extreme. I, I don't know if I'd be able to do it again. So what did you yeah. do when you were, I think for memory, you sat in a hammock or slept in a hammock and ate mangoes. Once you reached your destination, what was it all about? Yeah. The, the way I found out about it was actually through couch surfing. There was, um, there was a host and I was actually with two, two Danish guys. And she basically was like, Oh, you know, I have, um, you know, I have some family living in this village and there's like a once a year, uh, death ceremony. So like they basically celebrate everyone who's died in the village in the last year. 
And they basically just have this giant party. And there's only about 600 people living there. And it's, it's actually an island in, like, in the middle of this river. So they're pretty isolated. I remember walking around and seeing like two, three-year-old kids and they would just cry upon seeing us because they'd never seen white skin before. So it was pretty, it was pretty cool. And yeah, just slept in a hammock and just ate mangoes. <laughs> Sounds like something you could easily do in Donga, along with pineapple and guava. Yum. Well, our next guest, Phil, we have heard from Rochelle McIntosh, the photographer who fears water. I know, she's wonderful. Though. Yeah, she's great, isn't she? Um, well, she's a big fan of Donga, Donga, and he- heads off there every year when the humpback whales are migrating. And I know, as I said at the start of this episode, we recently mentioned experiences with killer whales in Alaska, but there's a special reason why whales head to Tonga. When we see them in Sydney, they're, they're going somewhere, right? So they're on their migration to go somewhere. Tonga is where they're going. Um, they're going there to to rest and to recuperate, to breathe, pretty much to party. Like the the young whales actually can't um, be born in Antarctica because they don't have enough blubber on them to withstand the cold climate. So everybody goes up north for the babies to be born, for more babies to be made. It's just a free for all for whales, and they're going to the tropical areas like Tonga and, and northern Australia to do that. So they're very chilled and and really relaxed in those kind of places. So do you go on your own or do you go with a team and what do you do once you're there? I go with my friends actually to Tonga. So friends of mine from Sydney who I go out with whaling, whaling as in positively whaling, looking at them <laughs> to photograph and things like that. We're all People call us whale tragics. I think whale celebrants is nicer. Because I'm not. I'm not tragic at all, mate. There's nothing tragic about this. But um, so we we go to a place called um Hapai, which is one of the central islands of Tonga. Um, a lot of operations are kind of centered around Vavau, which is I think north of Tonga Tapu. But Hapai, it's just a much more chilled environment. There's there's less people. It's um it's a beautiful spot. Really, pretty much. I think there's 62 islands and and only. 17 of those are inhabited so it's just old school chilled kind of place and and we go there friends of ours actually who run whale boats here in Sydney and in Marimbula they actually own a a whale business over there as well a whale swimming business um, operated out of Matapanua so it's just a good time for being with great friends and people who are ethically minded about whale swimming and yeah we it's just it's just awesome. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that word ethical because people do get jittery when you put a whale and, you know, getting on a boat together or even whale and Mm. swimming together. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, the rules are so stringent for people to be able to get a license in Tonga and to maintain that license. The rules are very, very strict in that you can only ever have four people in the water with a whale uh, four people plus the local guide who has to be licensed by the government over there. Um, very, very strict rules in terms of how many boats can be around a whale. In Hapai, I've only ever been um, in, in the one boat that has been in the area because there's nobody around, so we've never had to share whales. But every interaction, because it is free swimming, must be whale-led. Now, what that means is when you you see the whales in the distance, you must then you know stop a few hundred metres away and gauge whether or not they're interested. So if they are interested, they're usually pretty relaxed. They'll mosey on over and they'll demonstrate their curiosity by doing passes, um, maybe some spy hops and just general 
calm behaviour. If they start jumping around and carrying on or they zoom off, then you know that they're not into it. So you can't, there's no point in chasing a whale in the ocean. They're just going to run off anyway or swim off. Um, so yeah, every whale interaction is led by the whale. So if you do see a whale that is um, that demonstrates those things, that it's calm and it's curious, you gently get in the water a few hundred metres away and then you just kind of float around and, and wait and see what it does. And in this kind of environment, because they are chilled and, and they're, they're ready to, to interact, they'll often just approach you and come within a few metres for a bit of a look. Interactions can be as long or as short as the whale decides. When they've had enough of you, they'll just disappear back into the ocean again. So, yeah, basically, as long as it's whale-led, I don't have a problem with it, and as long as people aren't touching. Wait, how do you find Tonga? <laughs> Every island you go to, it's like the things that we have in the city, the, the hustle and the bustle and that crazy kind of like frenetic energy, the whole reason we go to islands is to ditch that, right? So when we go to islands, we want to chill out. And the reality is the people who live there are living on island time and we want to feel that kind of relaxed approach. So you kind of just have to go and go with it. And yeah, things might not, you know, start at the, the time that was allocated, but everything is done with a smile and with respect. And as long as you go with it and you don't push against it, you're going to enjoy yourself. The Tonga people are the gentlest, coolest, most laid back people. Why would you want to make somebody like that upset? Well, I understand why you go back each year. I know you're about to, <laughs> to head there. So enjoy. Yeah. And thanks for filling us in on that little part of the world. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Rochelle. Hey, look, if you liked this episode of the World Nomads podcast on Donga, you can also enjoy one of our other episodes on the Philippines, I reckon. I think one thing that we had to our advantage is that because we were part of this um, guided excursion that was being led by locals who were raised and grew up and still live in these villages, we immediately had this local connection through our crew that made us more welcome and more um, invited into these very remote areas where I think, you know, if a tourist or a traveler just showed up in their own boat and walked in, it would probably be pretty alarming to them. We'll have a link in show notes. You can find the latest episode through all of the popular podcast apps, all the good ones and some of the bad ones, as they say. <laughs> but the easiest way to listen to us is to go to worldnomads.com forward slash, slash podcast. See? Slash. Slash. <laughs> Nepal, in, in Nepal and slash. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to have a chat with us, you can email us at podcast at worldnomads.com. Well, next week, another amazing nomad, Leah, a licensed captain who sailed the equivalent of eight laps of the globe spent 73 days in a row naked and eaten over two years' worth of freeze-dried food. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries.